Amen. Take a Bible this morning, find Luke chapter 2. We're going to take a short break from our walk through the Gospel of John. We're going to spend three Sundays in a series that I've titled Christmas Guests. Uh, In the United States, when you think about having guests for Christmas, some of you immediately think about the movie Christmas Vacation and Clark Griswold and Cousin Eddie. Cousin Eddie being the unwanted guest. Some of you, as I put that picture up and mentioned Cousin Eddie, are already thinking about your family's version of Cousin Eddie. We all have one, right? And if you're scratching your head saying, I'm not sure that my family has one, it might be you. You might be Cousin Eddie, so just be aware of that. In this series, uh, there's no Cousin Eddie, although as we spend three weeks thinking about the people who came to visit Jesus. We're going to talk about soldiers, we're going to talk about wise men, and we're going to talk about shepherds this morning. It may be the shepherds who are most like Cousin Eddie. They may be the the outcast, the awkward family member, the person you'd rather not associate with. We're going to listen to what Luke has to say about the shepherds. These men were outcasts. They showed up shortly after Jesus was born. And I'll put a a summary timeline on the screen. We'll reference this each week just to think through what's going on. This is just sort of the the general order without times uh, or, or times in between these events. This is just the basic flow of events. Jesus is born. A week later, he's circumcised. Roughly a month later, he's dedicated at the temple in Jerusalem. At some point beyond that, the wise men come to visit. We'll talk about them next week. At some point after that, Joseph receives a a warning in a dream that he needs to take his family and he needs to escape to Egypt. So the family escapes after Herod gives this order to kill the babies in Bethlehem. At some point later, Herod dies, and that's when it's safe for the family to return to, quote-unquote, the promised land and Joseph settles his family in Nazareth. This morning we're thinking about the shepherds who showed up right after Jesus was born. Some Bible scholars try to pinpoint this on the calendar, and some Bible scholars suggest that the shepherds who worked around Bethlehem would have been out in the fields with their sheep at night between the months of March and November. And you're saying, wait a minute, I thought Christmas was in December. That's right. We celebrate Christmas on December 25th because in the year 336 AD, Emperor Constantine uh, Constantine said, this is when we're going to celebrate Christmas in the Roman Empire. And you can just look at this scholar or that scholar, this expert or that expert. No one's exactly sure what time of the year Jesus was born. There's some evidence to suggest a winter birth. Maybe it was close to December 25th. There's other evidence, these scholars pointing to the fact that the shepherds would have been out with their sheep in the fields and not in the fold with their sheep during the months of March to November. Maybe it was a spring birth. We're not entirely sure when Jesus was born in the year. What we are sure of as we think about Luke 2 is the fact that these shepherds were social and religious outcasts. Shepherds were not able to participate in the ceremonial rituals prescribed by the Pharisees. 
Uh, the Pharisees had added all these rules, all these washings, all these things that you needed to observe, all these ceremonial things to God's law. Shepherds just couldn't do all of that stuff. They spent almost all of their time with the sheep, whether they were with them in the fold or whether they were with them out in the fields. They just couldn't jump through all of these ceremonial hoops. And as a result, they were viewed as religious outsiders. They just couldn't participate in the normal life of God's people, at least as the Pharisees had things organized. Most people assumed that shepherds were thieves. Maybe they earned that reputation from time to time. They were just out in the fields. There was not fencing separating fields and land and property like there is today. And so maybe these guys took things that weren't theirs from time to time. That was their reputation. They were thieves. And their testimony wasn't even allowed in a court of law. That's what we know about shepherds. Outsiders viewed with suspicion, not even trusted in a court of law. That brings us to the passage. We're going to read, really, verse 8 to 20, but it's a little bit arbitrary just to pick up in verse 8, so we're going to back up to verse 1. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 20. These are familiar verses. These are verses we read every year as Christmas rolls around, but I want you to follow along as we read the Scripture together. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Scripture says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we just stopped to thank you for the Christmas story. 
Lord, it's a story that uh, we're familiar with. And when we're familiar with a, a Bible story, sometimes it's hard for us to hear what your word is actually saying. And so this morning we ask humbly for ears to hear the truth of your word. Lord, hearts to receive the truth about Jesus. Lord, and we pray that we would be a church, we would be families, we would be people who are changed and transformed by the good news that was proclaimed 2,000 years ago on the hills outside of Bethlehem. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some notes in your bulletin you can track along this morning. 2020 has been a year of cancellations, hasn't it? We've just canceled an awful lot of stuff. That's been true on a church level. We've had to cancel a lot of different things. Uh, I'm not quite sure I ever thought we would cancel Easter Sunday. I know we had Easter on live stream, but you know and I know it's not the same as gathering together for worship with the family of God, with the people of God, with your church family on Easter Sunday. Over the summer, we, we canceled VBS, and we canceled youth camp, and we canceled children's camp. Uh, we canceled our men's cake bake, one of the great Emmanuel events. There was no youth camp coming, so we didn't have a men's cake bake. And we canceled Thanksgiving lunch. How much do we love to eat Thanksgiving lunch together once a year? We didn't celebrate that. One of the things that we canceled this year, one of my favorite events every year is our parent-child dedication. We normally do this on Mother's Day. We did not do it this year. That's a picture of our last parent-child dedication. We actually had a big group of people who were going to bring their kids this last year. And, just spoiler alert, we've had a big group of people who have had kids in the last year, which means next year we're going to have a really big group of people who stand up and take part in our parent-child dedication. This is a, a thing that we do as a church family where we celebrate new life. Uh, we celebrate, celebrate children, we celebrate babies, and we thank God that he's given his church another generation of people. And we as a church, it's not just a, a dedication on the part of the parents, but we as a church dedicate to, to teach these kids and to disciple these kids and to share the gospel with these kids and to pray for these kids that they would grow up in our church and they would learn what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. It's a, a unique thing that we do as a church family. And celebrating a birth is a unique thing. There's a lot of joy involved in it. There's a lot of, truth be told, anxiety in it. There's a lot of anticipation and thankfulness, but uncertainty about what's to come in the future. None of that was on the shepherd's mind this night when they went out to the fields with the sheep. There's several things I want you to see about this story. Here's the first truth I want you to see. The shepherds were not looking for Jesus. They were not looking for Jesus in any way, shape, or form. Look at what we read in verse 8. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Luke says nothing about the possibility that maybe as they were watching over their sheep, they had their prophecy charts out saying, Look, if I'm reading this chart right, tonight's the night. No prophecy charts. Luke gives us no indication that there was a raging debate amongst the shepherds about Isaiah 7 and this virgin who would conceive 
and give birth to a baby who would be Emmanuel, God with us. This is a group of men who are just earning a paycheck. They're just out in the hills outside of Bethlehem doing their job. They weren't looking for Jesus, but God went looking for them. You understand, that's how it works every single time somebody meets Jesus. Every single time, that's how it works. We don't go looking for Jesus. God, in his grace and his mercy, comes and he looks for us. I'll give you a few examples. Genesis 12 is a story of a man named Abram. He was not looking for God. What very little we know about Abram and his family before he met the Lord is that they worshipped idols. They worshipped the gods and the goddesses of the Canaanites. Abram was not looking for the one true God. The one true God came looking for Abram, and he found him. You might think about the book of Psalms. There are two Psalms you ought to look at this afternoon. We're not going to read them, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. They are almost exactly identical word for word. God repeats himself twice in the book of Psalms. He says the same thing twice. And then, for good measure, the apostle Paul quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 in the book of Romans chapter 3, and this is part of what Paul says. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Left to ourselves, we're not looking for God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The story of the Bible is a story of human beings made in God's image who sin against God. And when you and I sin against God, that sin makes us exactly like Adam and Eve. Rather than running to God in the garden, rather than walking with God in the garden, we run as far away and as fast away from God as possible. We don't seek him. We don't look for him. We want nothing to do with him. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a story of a gracious, patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, God, who goes looking for his lost sheep. He goes looking for his people, and he finds them. You understand this morning, as you think about this story, if you know Jesus, it's because when you were running away from God, God came looking for you and he found you. You understand this morning, if you do not know Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never turned from your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, if you've never done that, perhaps this morning, as we read about a bunch of shepherds that God went to find, they weren't looking for him, but God was looking for them. As we think about this story and read this story and talk about this story, Maybe the Lord is pursuing you this morning. The shepherds were not looking for Jesus. Here's the second thing I want you to see. The shepherds were deeply impacted by the glory of God. They were deeply, deeply impacted by the glory of God. Look at verse 9. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were, were filled with great When you read verse 9, you cannot help but think about some of the Old Testament prophets. 
you cannot help but think about Isaiah in Isaiah 6, who is in the temple and he has a vision of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. The glory of the Lord filling the temple. Isaiah sees it. He experiences the glory of the Lord and he falls down on his face, terrified that he's about to be destroyed. Maybe you think of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was not in the temple. Ezekiel lived to see the temple destroyed and he was sent into exile. And he was sitting by a river, sitting by a canal. He had a vision of the Lord. He saw the Lord, not in the temple, but he saw the Lord in all his glory and all his splendor. And at the end of that vision, he falls on his face like a dead man. If you know those stories, you read this and you say, well, this sounds familiar. It's people that see the glory of the Lord. They experience the unmediated presence of God and they are completely overcome with fear and terror. It's no surprise that Luke says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. But that's where the story changes a little bit from Isaiah and Ezekiel. As the Lord began to speak to Isaiah and speak to Ezekiel, it was very clear that the Lord was angry with his people. Through Isaiah and through Ezekiel, the Lord delivered a message of doom and gloom. You've sinned and there will be a consequence. These angels, as the shepherds are filled with great fear, as we expect them to be, the angel says, don't be afraid. This is not a message of doom and gloom. This is a message of great joy. I have good news for you and for all the people. Look what we read in verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And at that moment, all the host of heaven begin to worship. That word host, it's not a word we use a lot in English. In the Bible, that word host has the idea of an army. The angel delivers this news. That's what angels do in the Bible. They, they deliver messages. We're not to pray to them. We're not to worship them. We're not to try to have any kind of relationship with them. They just deliver God's mail. And the angel delivers the mail. And the mail is, don't be afraid. I have good news of great joy for all the people. They experience this glory of the Lord. They immediately, look at verse 14, see the host of heaven worshiping. Notice the first word in verse 14, glory to God in the highest. The glory of the Lord shone around them, verse 9. Verse 14, the angels are proclaiming glory to God in the highest. Look how the story ends in verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You see the progression of glory throughout that passage? First, there is this experience of God's glory. Then the shepherds hear the angels glorifying God. And by the end of the passage, the shepherds themselves are glorifying God. There's two ideas of glory here that you and I have to keep in balance. One is the objective external reality of God's glory, and the other is the sense in which we glorify God. Let's start with the first. The glory of God exists objectively apart from anything that you or I do or say. It is a reality that is fixed and immutable and unchangeable and eternal. 
God is glorious. That external reality of God's glory is more real than the nose on your face. It's more real. It's more real than the chair that you're sitting on. It's more real than the nice new projectors we have shining up on the screen. It's more real than the cars that you drove in to get here this morning. It is an external, objective reality. You and I can't make it bigger. We certainly can't make it smaller. It's not like the movie Elf. You remember the end of Elf? Santa doesn't have enough Christmas spirit, and the people need to sing, and as they sing, it adds to the Christmas spirit meter, and the, the sleigh's able to do its thing. That's not what we're talking about. It's not like you and I gather together and we worship and we sing and then suddenly God's glory becomes something or becomes bigger. Or it's not like if we fold our arms and refuse to sing that somehow God's glory becomes smaller. It's not like working in the sound booth where Mark's sitting at the soundboard and he could turn up the volume knob and increase the volume. It's not like we gather together and we give to a missions offering and that turns up the volume knob on God's glory. That's not how it works. God's glory exists outside of us, apart from us. He's not dependent on us for anything. We can't increase it. We can't decrease it. And yet when we experience the glory of God in Jesus Christ, we're changed. We're transformed. We're turned into people who delight to recognize that God is glorious. That's what's happening in this passage. We start with this external objective reality. The glory of the Lord, as it is, shines on the hills outside of Bethlehem. And the shepherds hear the angels glorifying God. They're not increasing his glory. They're just recognizing and celebrating his glory. And by the end of the story, the shepherds are changed into the kind of people who also want to recognize and celebrate God's glory. Have you experienced that change? I hope that you have. I don't mean, have you gone out in the hills of Odessa in the middle of the night and waited for some glory to shine. You're just going to find pump jacks and tumbleweeds. That's it. I'm saying, have you met Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the glory of God in his son Jesus? And has that changed you and transformed you into a person who delights, who naturally, instinctively celebrates and acknowledges God's glory? Here's the third truth I want you to see. The shepherds were not honored guests. They were not honored guests. There's an interesting contrast in this passage. You have an angel. The angel is joined by the host of heaven, the army of heaven. And the glory of the Lord is shining out in the middle of the night on this hillside. And then you have a bunch of shepherds people that everyone assumes are thieves, people that no one will believe anything they say about anything they saw or heard. Isn't that interesting? They saw and heard the most remarkable thing. When they went to tell somebody, no one would have believed them. They were shepherds. You have the host of heaven and you have the shepherds. It's an odd pairing. It's a striking pairing. Maybe you remember the movie from the 60s, The Odd Couple, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. One of them is normal, 
He likes order, structure. He's a little bit neurotic. Place for everything and everything in its place. Amen? And the other guy is just annoying. There's no place for anything. Nothing's in its place. Uh, he's a slob. He's messy. He's easygoing. He doesn't make plans. He flies by the seat of his pants. He's like some of you guys. You drive me crazy. And together, they're an odd couple. It's an interesting story because they're so different. It's the same dynamic at work in Disney's Beauty and the Beast. You have Belle and all of her beauty. And then you have the Beast. And he's a little bit scary. And you put them together and it's an interesting story. That's the kind of dynamic at work here in Luke 2. You have the angel and the host of heaven, the army of heaven, hanging out in the middle of the night on a hillside outside Bethlehem with shepherds with shepherds. I read something this week I had never heard. It's a possibility. Some Bible scholars suggest that these shepherds, the ones who lived outside Bethlehem, were the ones responsible for keeping the flocks that would have been offered as a sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. There's some evidence for that. It's not rock solid. I can't point you to a verse in Luke 2 that says that, but some Bible scholars, some historians say these were the shepherds that were responsible for the flocks that would have been offered as sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. It's an interesting possibility to think about, right? The shepherds who were watching over the lambs that would be killed as a sacrifice are invited to meet the Lamb of God who would die as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. It's interesting to think about, but it's just a possibility. We don't know that for certain. What we know for certain is that shepherds were not viewed as pillars of the community. They were religious and social outcasts. And they're the ones, on the night Jesus was born, they're the ones that God Almighty sent his glory to appear to and the angel to speak to them and the host of heaven to announce this news. He sent that news to a bunch of people that no one would believe when they went to tell everyone what happened. Why would God do something like that? Why not send the whole group to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the high priest? Seems like a fitting place. Why not send the whole revelation to the palace, to to Herod, to the, the ruler of God's people at this time? Why send it to a bunch of shepherds? And the answer is that's how God usually works in the Bible. He usually doesn't operate the way that human beings expect him to operate. He usually doesn't side with the rich and the powerful and the high and the mighty. He usually sides with the underdog, with the outcast, with the one that you'd least expect. That's what he did in Genesis 25. There were brothers born, Esau and Jacob. Esau was older. Everyone expected Esau to rule the family and lead the family. God picked Jacob. He defied expectation. You can look at 1 Samuel 16. The prophet was getting ready to anoint a new king of Israel. Everyone expected David's oldest son, then his next oldest son, then his next oldest son, excuse me, Jesse's oldest son, Jesse's next oldest son, his next. And the prophet went all the way down the line and he anointed the youngest. That's how God tends to operate. He picks the outcast. He picks the underdog. He picks the one you'd least expect. Can I tell you something? That's not just how he operates in the Old Testament, and it's not just how he operated on the hills outside of Bethlehem. It's how he operates today in his church. Look what we read in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. 
Consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. What a way to flatter your audience. I mean, just think for a second about who you are. You're not very wise. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why did he do that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul goes on to say this, because of him you are in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus, not because of you, but because of him. God is the one who unites you to Christ Jesus. You don't unite yourself to Christ Jesus. You weren't looking for God. God came looking for you. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Listen, the shepherds were not honored guests. That's the point. Neither am I, and neither are you. If you and I think for a moment that God is privileged to have us on his team, we have missed the point. We missed it entirely. We're not VIPs. We're not MVPs. We're not honored dignitaries. We're not highly respected guests. We're weak. We're foolish. We're shepherds. And by God's grace, the God who comes looking for us, he invites us. We get to be part of the party. We're not honored guests. One last truth. The shepherds were the first to meet Jesus. That seems rather obvious. Look at verse 11. The angel says to the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Very first sermon I preached was in Amarillo, Texas. It was before I was a pastor in Kentucky. I preached at my home church on Christmas Day, and I was assigned that passage. I promise you, you could preach multiple sermons on verse 11. We're going to sum it up not just in a single sermon, but in just a couple of minutes. Read it one more time. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These shepherds, number one, met the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Every time a baby is born, people close to that baby, parents, grandparents, family, friends, they find themselves wondering, what will this baby be like when they grow up? What are they going to look like? Are they going to be smart? Are they going to struggle in school? Are they going to be athletic? Are they going to be bookish? What are they going to do with their life? You just wonder about all of these things. This was a baby whose birth was announced by the army of heaven, and yet in his 30-some years on life, he never led an army, never commanded an army. It wasn't why he came. He came to die. He came to be the Savior. He came to give his life as a sacrifice for God's people. This was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. The shepherds met the Savior. Have you? Jesus does not want to just be your life coach. Jesus came to save you from sin and death. Have you met the Savior? Secondly, the shepherds met the Christ. 
or you could say the Messiah. Christ is an English word that comes from a Greek word. Messiah is an English word that comes from a Hebrew word. It's the same word. In either language, Greek or Hebrew, it just means the anointed one. Or loosely, you could say the chosen one. The chosen one. The anointed one. This is the promised baby who had been promised. His birth had been promised. His life, his death, his resurrection. All of these things had been promised for centuries and centuries and centuries. You know, every time we've had a a kid in our family, I've found myself just marveling at the fact that nine months earlier they did not exist. They didn't exist. And then in a moment they exist and then nine months later they're born and they're there and it's just a striking thought to think this person wasn't here. Sometimes it surprises us when those little people show up. There's no surprise here. This was the promised Christ, from before the foundation of the world, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection was foretold. The shepherds met the Christ. They met the one that God had promised to send. Have you met him? He's the most important person who has ever lived in human history, the most important person who's ever walked on the earth. You can meet him. They met the Savior. They met the Christ. Thirdly, they met the Lord. The Greek word here is kurios. In English, it would be K-U-R-I-O-S. That word in Greek does double duty for two Hebrew words. One of the Hebrew words is Adonai, Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. The other word is Yahweh. In most English Bibles, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This Greek word does double duty, and it can mean either one. And it's not entirely clear in the context in every place which one is intended. But this is the idea. Luke says, verse 11, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's the miracle of Christmas and the miracle of incarnation that as these shepherds went into Bethlehem, they found, just as they were told, a baby. baby was wrapped in cloth just as they were told. It was lying in a feeding trough, just as they were told. And they stood there at the quote-unquote manger scene, and they looked at this baby, and they looked at the Lord. The Lord. It's not just a baby. It was God with us. Emmanuel, God who took on human flesh without ceasing to be God, that he might save people who had rebelled and ran far away from God. It's the ultimate example of God coming to look for us when we were not looking for him. These shepherds met Jesus. Jesus, the Savior. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the Lord. I pray that you've met him.